going to talk today, we'll continue the talk today, looking at what we've called the prodigal church. And we know the story of the prodigal son. This is the prodigal church, the church in Corinth, the church that had to come back because it had fallen so badly in different ways. And we're going to, in the weeks ahead, see just how far they had fallen. Uh, so today's message is called the end of the world, the end of the world. And it's not the end of the world as you might think of uh, cat- catastrophe. But Paul is describing in these passages we're going to look at this morning of how the world has been completely flipped upside down. The values of the gospel, the message of the gospel is such a contradiction to the way the world talks about what success is. And Paul flips that on his head. And we're going to celebrate that because Paul, with his insight into this tiny little church, set in motion some words that have held our attention now for 2,000 years because they describe to us an upside-down kingdom, an upside-down world, which we are all a part of. Now, the world that we're a part of, of course, we're in New Zealand. Here we are, right down the bottom of the planet here. And uh, the unique thing about being a New Zealander is that Every one of us has traveled to this country either personally or through our ancestors looking for a better future. Is that right? Be you uh, Tangata Whenua, Māori, who came 900 years ago in the great canoes, Te Arawa, Kurahopo, Matuatua, Takitimu, and others who traveled across the distance and landed on our fair shores. And then, of course, a couple hundred years ago, Europeans came, and now we're a multicultural society. But within your DNA, within your DNA, within the DNA that your ancestors have gifted you, you have this desire desire to do things well and do things better. And you came to this country looking for hope, looking for a new beginning, a place in which you could feel that you're offering your family a new opportunity. I remember studying New Zealand history at university some years ago, and uh, they showed us some pictures of what photographs were sent back to the UK around about the turn of the last century, last century, last century before that one, I should say, um, back in the 1890s. And parents would get their children to sit sideways so that they could take a photo and show how much weight their children were carrying. Do you like that idea? Okay. Yeah. 120 years ago, I would have been a a poster boy, you know. (laughs) But the idea was to tell the people back in England or Europe that this was the land of milk and honey. This is a place where you grew fat little kids and they all grow up to be great rugby players. That's what the world was all about. Simple as that. Of course, New Zealanders like the idea that we can start from nothing and make something of our lives. That's the beauty of opportunity, isn't it? Uh, Luck is said to be where hard work intercepts opportunity. Do you like that? Luck is where hard work intercepts opportunity. You've got to put the hard work in and then opportunity presents itself and you get lucky. As it said, You know, the person who was told that they're very lucky because of what they've achieved in their life, they say, yep, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And New Zealanders like that. We've got this sort of core sense of value that everybody can make a go of it. And we see this reflected in unusual places. We see it reflected in our money. The pictures on the back of our notes. Okay, on the $20 note, of course, we've got the Queen. She's the sovereign. That's cool. She's allowed to be there. Um, But the other notes reflect something of who we are as a nation as well. 
You've got Sir Edmund Hillary, of course, on the $5 note. A beekeeper's son from Pukekohe, who happened to be with Sherpa Tenzing, the first people to go to the top of the world, Mount Everest. And uh, I'm not going to repeat what he said when he got off the, bo- off, off the mountain, but we know, we affirm that. And, uh, and he's a good Kiwi bloke. From nowhere, top of the world, became an amazing philanthropist in respect to helping the Nepalese. Uh, the $10 note, Kate Shepherd. She's the woman who headed up this charge towards the emancipation of women and allowing them to be given the vote. And New Zealand's the first nation in the world that allowed women to get the vote. And so we celebrate that. Where did she come from? Well, she was actually born in Liverpool and her mother came out to New Zealand taking her and her sister and her mother was a widow. So she came to New Zealand again with this idea that we can start off with nothing, but we can become something, okay? Uh, the $50 note is uh, Sir Apirana Nata. Sir Apirana Nata is from Ngāti Pirō on the eastern coast of the North Island of New Zealand. He's the oldest of 15 children. Okay, 15 children. And he went to Te Oti Boys College and then went off to university and became the first indigenous uh, person to ever get a degree and went on to become a lawyer and served in parliament for decades, uh, allowing the the prosperity of the Māori folk to be uh, uh, energised and to be acknowledged. And then, of course, there's Ernest Rutherford. Ernest Rutherford's on the $100 note. Have any of you seen the $100 note? Okay, you have. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I don't know if the woman who count the money after the offering see many of them, Denise, do we? Do we we say? Okay, I won't say. Yeah. There's lots of uh, bad jokes about that sort of thing. Um, I won't tell you them. Anyway, Ernest Rutherford, his parents were farmers. In fact, to give you an idea just how humble they were, when his father went and registered him at the registry office when he was born, he misspelt his name. He called him Ernest, E-A-R-N-E-S-T. He was probably thinking of how much his son would earn for him. Uh, So he spelt it wrong. So that's how humble they were. He went on to be the first person in the world to lead a team that broke the atom, split the atom. That's why he's so famous. But all of these stories are about people who started from nowhere and became something, someone of significance. That's a Kiwi story. That's a Kiwi point of celebration. And we're not so excited or interested in people who are born with a silver spoon in their mouths. In fact, we sort of look at them sideways and we're not so sure if they're honest or dishonest or whether they actually have the value of hard work. Uh, But, you know, that can be a little bit unfair as well. So when we hear the stories about what we think of as important to New Zealanders, we realise that this spills over into the gospel, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Because we are told that when we come to faith, we have to start from that position of humility, start from the position of nothing. Recognising that when it comes to putting ourselves in favour with God, it is God who has acted first and we respond to what God has done for us. We can't rock up to God and say, hey God, I'm a good guy, I split the atom, you know, so therefore I deserve my place with you in eternity. God says, no, no, I don't care if you split the atom or walked on the moon. You've got to be in a position of humility first, presenting yourself as someone who knows they are a sinner and needing God's salvation. Because the story and the wisdom of God ends and begins, begins and ends here at the cross. Where Jesus said, I will go to the cross and die and pay the price for your sins. You are called to have faith in me. 
And on that basis, a transaction occurs, a divine transaction where your sins are exchanged for God's forgiveness because his son has paid the price of your sins. And because Jesus rose from the grave three days later, you inherit that resurrection power from Jesus as well. That's the transaction. It's the foolishness of the gospel that Paul is talking about. This is the transaction, the divine transaction, that doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what your education is, whether you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth or a wooden one, it makes no difference. When Jesus was talking to his disciples and they were asking about what it means to be a God follower uh, and what is it that they have to do to earn God's favour, this is one of the key verses that describes what it is that's required of us. It says here in John 6, 28, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So that's, how we please God in the first instance. We believe in the one he sent. That's the person of Jesus. We believe in his message. We believe what he's done on the cross for us. That is the point of transaction where faith steps up and steps into the whole deal of your salvation. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Believe that he's paid the price for your sin. Believe that if you ask for that forgiveness and invite Christ into your life, he becomes Lord of your life. Believing is the work that you have to bring to the whole transaction. Believing. It's amazing, isn't it? So let's now, let's now turn to the passages of Scripture that we really want to get into looking at this, this church in Corinth. Paul said, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. That should cause us to think. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what Paul's saying here to this little group of people is that all the values of the world are meaningless. Nobility, money, influence, and Paul is turning the world upside down. Yeah, and I like the upside down world because New Zealand's at the top. It's just the way it's meant to be. This is a biblical worldview, folks. This is the way it's meant to be. We should be going to the United Nations advocating for this, okay? My argument is that the heavy stuff goes to the bottom, okay? All right, there's logic here, there's logic, okay? It's got this imperial worldview that we've had to live with. They just got it all wrong. Anyway, what Paul is describing to us is this transformation, and this transformation is nothing less than the end of the world. I got that quote out of a commentary. I thought it was fantastic. Paul is saying, this is the end of the world. This is the end of the way, the way in which the world thinks and operates. Success is not success, and what is deemed to be failure is the beginning of God's success. This is how it works. And we know that this is how it works, don't we? 
Because you might win the rat race, but when you get to the top, you're still a rat, okay? So this is not working, okay? This is not working. You can have loads of money in the bank and you can still be mega depressed, okay? You just cry on deeper carpet, okay? <laughs> That's all that happens. This is true, we know this. This is true. People will, who get to the top tell you that it's not as great up there as they were told it was going to be. They're told it's, success is going to give you happiness. It, no guarantee. You can't correlate those two things together. Let's just read that again, what I said before from, from Corinthians, because we're starting to get to grips with what Paul's saying. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So Paul is not using words randomly here. He's actually uh, talking specifically, specifically about the culture in Corinth. You see, there were people within the Greek culture who were, who were wise. They love wisdom, the Greeks. The word philosophy means the lover of wisdom. Sophie, Sophia, word wisdom. Philo, the lover of. You know, we get that city in America called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay, you like it? So Paul is saying to these philosophers, you might be wise, but the wisdom of God is wiser still. And they've got this huge array of people whom they draw their wisdom from. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, who else have we got? Uh, and it goes on, the list goes on. Seneca, others who are wise and they celebrate this wisdom. And these people became the people of influence. They would set the stage, set the culture, set the direction of what was that they should celebrate within the Greek culture. And the gift of speaking was known, sorry, the, the way in which they spoke was called rhetorical speaking. This is where we get the word rhetoric from. So what would happen is people would get up there and pose questions, rhetorical questions, questions that are designed not to be answered by the audience, but they ask a question and then they ask another question on top of that and they lead people's thinking down a certain way. Okay, we have algorithms now on the, on the website to lead people in certain thinking. But the art of rhetoric was a powerful medium of communication. And the Greeks loved those who were great orators. They were the movie stars, the pop stars of the day. And folks took great pleasure in hosting uh, gatherings where these philosophers would come and speak. Okay, so this is the, these are the people Paul is talking about here. And then, of course, he's talking about those who were born with the silver spoon in their mouth, those who were born into the nobility. And he's saying for all of what these folks bring... The gospel turns this upside down and says, those who are weak, those who are despised, those who are lowly, this is where the gospel gives you success, gives you success in your life. Remember what Paul says here. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So what we're being told is that everybody's in. Everybody's in. There's no class structure within the kingdom of God. Uh, there's this little note that someone put above our photocopier in the back of the church here, in the admin 
room. I don't know who put it up, but it was probably the wisest move they've ever made, this little note. It said here, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your stupidity. <laughs> Most comforting thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and uh, that really captures what Paul is saying here, isn't it? You know, he's going to take somebody, anybody, and if we press into God, he can allow them to become people who uh, are of value to the kingdom of God. So foolish things, weak things, lowly things, despise things. These are the people that we are told we don't aim to be, but we can have a starting place where we're filled with shame, we have no influence, uh, we've done things wrong, broken in many different ways. Paul says, in the world's eyes, you have no value. Paul said, I turn this around. You are of great value. And so what happens here is Paul uses these words, nullify. Nullify the things that are. And uh, to cancel out, it means, or to make it no longer valid. So if you were born a slave, that is no longer valid. Okay? If you have been put into debtor's jail because you couldn't pay your debts, that's no longer valid. You're a child of the king. You're a child of God. These things are just so... Uh, difficult to get your head around because the world is always working around us on a work-reward basis, aren't they? If you do this, you'll get that. If you do this, you'll get that. A transaction, always. Whereas Paul is reminding us that the gospel is a level playing ground for every one of us. And when we're told that things are nullified, that means that they're cancelled out completely. So you get a fresh start at that point of conversion, that point of the cross, um, many of you will have heard of John Olomu, the rugby superstar who passed away, I think, two years ago now. Uh, John Olomu was the first rock star of the rugby world, the professional era. In fact, they reckon him alone and the things that he did on the rugby field put rugby on the map in countries where rugby was never really appreciated at all. But one of the interesting things about John Olomu's rugby record is that for being the superstar, the rock star that he was, whenever he played the South Africans, they nev he never scored a try. So in all of the years that he played rugby at the highest level, the South Africans nullified him. He was a weapon, the weapon of the world, all the way from the South Pacific, okay, going out to take on powers and principalities. But the South Africans somehow managed to tie his bootlaces together. Isn't that right? See a few South Africans nodding here furiously, you know? Yeah. I'll say Jesus is Lord, they won't move, but South Africans beat John Olomo. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> oh, unfair. That's unfair. But what we're told is that whatever background you have, the cross nullifies your shame. The cross nullifies everything that you think you might be proud of. It's a leveler that brings you back to that point of new beginnings. Now, I'm going to um, show you a little bit of video now from a movie uh, from the great story by Victor Hugo called Les Miserables. Okay? If you're from a lowly background, the movie's called Les Miserable. Okay? So, um, so here we go. <laughs> You'll pick up the story. Liam Neeson plays uh, Jean Valjean. As a, uh, as a criminal who's looking for a new way forward.
Is anybody there? So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed. <laughs> That you gave it to him? Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. For all the wisdom of the world, for the history of mankind, for thousands of years, we've never invented anything that can overcome evil, except the message of the cross and the forgiveness and the grace that God offers. In that clip, which I think is one of the most powerful clips in movie history, to be quite honest, we see there the images of grace and mercy being extended to somebody who didn't deserve that, somebody who deserved judgment. And so we're told that uh, in the preaching of the gospel, the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel, there is the opportunity given to us to overcome the evils of this world. And that's why Paul says that this world is tipped upside down on its head, completely upside down. Jesus reminds us of this, or should I say really, Paul is reminding us of what Jesus said. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son has chosen to reveal him. So even Jesus was saying that the wise things of this world are missed by those who see themselves as learned, and they're revealed to little children, this grace and this forgiveness. Further again, Jesus said, this isn't about works, this is about believing, taking upon upon yourself the grace of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Regardless of your background, you can become a child of God and have a successful life. Because why? Because success is not about the money in the bank. Success is your ability to know the peace and the joy and the contentment and the love and the fellowship of God. And that spills over into all of your other relationships. And so we're reminded the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things is no law or no limit. And I could guarantee you this, that somebody who has accumulated a lot would exchange all of what they've accumulated to experience those, that fruit of the Spirit that's up there on, in front of you now. Because that's what success is. The contentment of knowing God, being known by God, having peace with God. That's what this whole transaction is about that allows you to be forgiven, to be put right with God. So therefore, the things of this world don't matter anymore. They don't matter. They don't count. And so Jesus reminds us that these are the things that he's prepared to die for. And if he's prepared to die for them, then we should be accepting them. That's the most important thing. Paul goes on, he says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Our righteousness is not worth anything. The righteousness we get from God through that transaction on the cross is worth everything. Our holiness is not anything we can manufacture. The holiness that we need to stand in the presence of a holy God is a gift as an extension of forgiveness that we receive, makes us holy. And the word redemption is a powerful word, and it comes to us from the the slave trading days that have been throughout history, but particularly as we think of the Middle Eastern context. If somebody was redeemed as a slave, it meant that somebody went in and paid the price for you to set you free. And this would happen from time to time. Well-meaning people, we don't know their motives, but they would go to a slave auction and they would buy someone, literally buy somebody, and then they would redeem them, having paid that price, and set them free. And this is what the word is telling us here, is that we have been bought at a price. And on that basis, God takes the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not, to put to shame the things that are. And it doesn't matter what background you come from, the color of your skin, the language you speak, male or female, we are being told that the gospel is good news 
for everybody because it takes all the rules of the world and completely turns them upside down and allows you to have a value beyond anything that you could ever purchase or own or, or become. Therefore, Paul says in his summary, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because why? Because he has done it all. He has given you it all. He has taken the opportunity to, to pull you into his kingdom, to pull you into his plan. And if you haven't taken the opportunity or seized the moment to enter into this divine transaction, then I want to say today is a day to do that. Christ died on that cross for me, and he died on that cross for you. And that transaction of grace is something that I've taken on in my life to be forgiven of my sin, and you can do that too. If you've never invited Christ into your life, then today is the day to do that. And you're saying, well, how do I know if God's speaking to me or not? Well, you will feel it, literally. The Holy Spirit will be doing something in you right now, and you'll be going, oh, that's a new experience. I never realized that I needed to invite Christ into my life. That's the whole deal. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. Good news because it allows us to transact away our sin and give us a whole new start to be born again, to be forgiven, and to become a child of God. Why don't we stand? Why don't we stand? Lord, I thank you that the world is upside down because of you. And Paul tells us in very, very clear terms what that means. It means that all the values of the world are completely put on their head. It means that what we thought were our trophies are no longer our trophies. And what we thought was to our shame has become the starting place for you to, to join us, to meet us, to forgive us, and to invite us into your kingdom. There might be some here today who just need to have a revelation of God's forgiveness. You've, you've beat yourself up. You've, you've walked in shame. I just want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd remind people that the cross is powerful in its ability to forgive, that you died on that cross to take away shame. So for those who are feeling too ashamed to, to worship, too ashamed to acknowledge you, then they are forgiven. And for those who have never crossed that line of faith by inviting Christ into their life, we ask today that you give them courage to complete that transaction, to invite Jesus into their life and ask for the forgiveness of their sins, to allow them to become a child of God. Lord, we thank you that you nullify the things of the world, that you take all the values and you flip them over and say, they don't count for anything anymore. We thank you that your grace and your love for us knows no boundaries. For all of these things, we can only stand in awe of you. And for all of these things, we can only boast by the fact that it was done by you, Lord Jesus. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.